a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Uh, We have so much to cover today. Most of it relevant, too. huh? How's that for a change? Actually, I'm, I'm glad you could tune in. Want to thank my sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, that's ironsightbc.com, as well as quiltandso.com. So, a couple of different things here. I I really got a kick out of the video clip I saw yesterday of, uh, is it uh, Argentine? I think it's the Argentinian president, uh, Javier Millet. This guy... I, is there any is there any way we could draft somebody like him to to run for president of the U.S.? I know you got to be a native born citizen and all that, but holy cow, that guy! Well, okay, let me let me back up just a little bit. So apparently he was uh, invited to participate in the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, which is going on right now in Davos, Switzerland. Which someone pointed out that might be a really solid way to attempt to uh, discredit Milay to his supporters on the political right. This guy is, uh, he's about as libertarian as they come. Uh, some would say, yes, he's an anarcho-capitalist or uh, he's, he, anyway, he is very much an advocate of you limit the state until it is a mere shadow of its former self, which to me is really good. That's, <laughs> you, you basically neuter it, keep it on its leash and when it is needed, you call for it. And when it's not needed, it basically sits in its uh, kennel and, and whimpers and waits for someone to hand it a treat. As opposed to the monster that we have dictating so much of what goes on in our lives and helping itself to every little bit of our, you know, our, our earnings. And in fact, I got I to gotta see if I can find this. Brian Allman, who runs the Gem State Substack, great, great source of information. He, uh, he shared something here that, uh, that was just chilling. And it was from the, uh, I guess this, this was from the Idaho State Capitol. And it's, it's a great big, it's a great big uh, portrayal or display that uh, is supposed to show us about how government serves the people a day in the lives of all Idahoans. And, and I'm, I'm sharing with you verbatim, this is what it says. Government services touch the lives of every Idahoan every day. City, county, state, tribal, and federal governments fulfill different responsibilities, but share many goals. Consider these examples of how government services might touch the lives of an Idaho family on a typical day. And it literally goes from 7 a.m., rise and shine, children's sleepwear must meet safety standards established by the federal government. You see where this is going? 7.30 is breakfast, with a food supply kept safe through government standards and inspections. There was nothing here about uh, the government making the sun rise each morning. That was probably just a little bit of an oversight. 8 o'clock, picking up the trash. Oh, yes. You know, getting your, your garbage taken care of and traffic enforcement made by local county or state police officers keeps the roads safe. 
that it's time for school. Where, you ask? Well, in a government-run facility. That's where they're going to uh, teach your kids what to think. 9 a.m., it's another workday with worker protection services by state and national government ensuring fair treatment. And it goes on and on. Oh, look, the mail arrived sometime today. That's thanks to the United States Postal Service. And then heading home from work. It talks about how your office building and other buildings in town are are placed in accordance with local zoning requirements and, and you know, the traffic signals are helping you. And then there's a trip to the park created by government and at 6 o'clock watering the lawn, assuming this is summer, I guess, with municipal governments maintaining sewer and water systems. 7 o'clock, let's watch TV. The Federal Communications Commission regulates AM and FM radio and television broadcast stations as well as cable television and other services, cellular phones, pagers, and two-way radios. Is there anything we could do without them? 8 o'clock, bedtime, safe at home. Citizens rely on the safety and security provided by law enforcement agencies at city, county, and state, and federal levels, as well as the nation's military at home and abroad. My gosh, whoever put this together, which, by the way, again, I'm assuming this was done with taxpayer funds since it's in a a, uh, government building. I really hope they didn't dislocate their shoulder patting themselves on the back. But it's so dystopian to try to outline and spin. Look how positive it is. Nothing good in your life would be happening if it weren't for the blessings of the political class. Okay, not every one of us feels that way. It's, it's incredibly dystopian. From morning to night, from cradle to grave, it's government that blesses your life and every breath you take. Okay, this is where Javier Mille, the president of, uh, of Argentina, is like, no, screw that. And, of course, the World Economic Forum is just a proponent of big-time collectivism. The big governments of the world, basically, they're, they're stumping for a world government. By the way, you should probably know they also uh, mentioned that they were getting ready to roll out a new uh, central bank digital currency, which would absolutely exert control over everything you spend and everything you make. Just something to keep in mind. Melee told them to their faces, you guys are a bunch of parasites. Freedom is the goal here, not control, not, you know, the blessings of the political class. He told them to their faces. And it was a beautiful thing. I I would expect him, somebody's going to be at war with him soon, I assume, because there will be some resource or something discovered in Argentina that we've got to go after him. He's a threat to the peace and safety of the world. But anyway, I'm just grateful there are people out there who, he, he went to the belly of the beast, but he spoke truth to power. As opposed to a uh, news media, which is basically a neutered or spayed cat or lap dog that <laughs> just sits there. And, How can I serve you today, master? What, what would you like me to say to, to make people think a certain way? To show love for all the blessings you shower on us. It's, it's ridiculous. There are alternatives, all right? You're listening to an alternative voice at this moment. And uh, yes, our numbers may be small, but... Freedom really is the ultimate prize. In fact, I, I'll take it one step further. It's, it's the greatest gift that God gives his children. The only downside is we, we have a tendency not to use it so wisely. By the way, I want to start out with something here, too. This is, uh, I know there's a lot of concern over misinformation. There's a whole war on misinformation taking place here. So here's some very sound advice from Steve Kirsch, uh, courtesy of James Howard Kunstler, who shared this on X. A concise guide on how world governments can stop misinformation. Now, this specifically applies to the COVID vaccine, but the general principles are applicable to all types of misinformation. 
Steve Kirsch says. Number one, stop lying to people. Number two, when you make a mistake, admit it publicly as soon as you realize you made a mistake. Next, stop hiding the data. Data transparency is key. Invite credible opposition to query all available databases. If governments are telling the truth, they should have nothing to fear. Next, stop the censorship. Speak out against any organization employing censorship or intimidation tactics to silence dissent, including medical certification boards. Scientific consensus should never be achieved by silencing dissent through censorship and intimidation tactics. All professionals in all fields should be allowed to speak freely to the public without fear of retribution. Next, Steve Kirsch recommends hold regular open public debate with qualified people who disagree with you so the public can see directly who is telling the truth and who is not. Next, he says, have a regular public dialogue with government officials and the top misinformation spreaders to openly discuss the differences and how to best resolve them. Finally, if you really want to, uh, actually second to last, if you really want to battle misinformation, act as champions of truth, and when truth is not being pursued, speak out publicly about it. For example, there are many whistleblowers who will testify that the clinical trial data for the Pfizer vaccine was fabricated. Is this true? The U.S. Department of Justice refuses to talk to or interview these whistleblowers, yet not a single public official is calling them out for turning a blind eye to what's going on. And finally, collaborate with the misinformation spreaders to design joint projects that both sides agree will resolve ambiguities. For example, how many households in America have one or more COVID vaccine-injured members? The V-safe data from the CDC suggests that this number could be well over 30% of American households. What is the actual number? Well, the CDC doesn't want to investigate. So why can't there be an investigation using a process agreed to by both parties? He says the reason misinformation is still a problem is because government officials won't do any of the items listed in this post. Not a single one. I think he has a point. You know, we didn't... I'll, I'll harken back to something that Joseph Sobrand said many years ago. There was a time when we didn't talk about safe sex. You know why? It's because generally, in other words, the rule rather than the exception was sex was reserved for marriage. And when people were controlling themselves and limiting their sexual activities to their spouse, well, you really didn't have to worry about safe sex, did you? Much in the same way that misinformation wasn't really a big deal or fake news wasn't a big deal until people in the interest of propping up some government opinion or program or something like that started dealing fake information and fake news to us funny how that works isn't it this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show All right, we are back. I want to give a very quick plug here. If you haven't checked out or subscribed to Hide in Plain Sight, that is my sub stack. And if you want to receive a little daily kick in the pants, it's uh, something you might want to consider. We're talking 90 seconds worth of audio, uh, perhaps less if you just read the message that's written, but it's a non-political approach to reclaiming your life, your prerogative, and basically living according to your script instead of someone else's. And it's something that I really enjoy doing too. So if you haven't checked it out, it's hide, H-Y-D-E, in plain sight, 
www.substack.com. All right, that said, have you found yourself feeling addicted to bad news? I know, I'm, I'm one to talk, uh, of course. Well, I'm always looking for interesting news stories, and so many of them are bad news. But I want to share with you something that Paul Rosenberg has been counseling about how to break the cycle at least for a day. And this was an email that I got just earlier this week titled, Just for One Day. Here's what he says. Paul Rosenberg writes, Most people fail to appreciate the fresh opportunity that each day brings them. Their programming requires them to snort derisively at any positive description of humanity. After all, the systems of this world are built upon the assumption that mankind is weak, stupid, and generally inadequate to a moral existence. So, as a result, people have become addicted to bad news. Now, he says, nonetheless, every day is a fresh start, a situation created by nature itself. So, he says, please consider this. What if, just once, you got out of bed and imagined that you were a fresh being in the universe? And more than that, a good, creative, potent being. What if you imagined yourself free of obligations and intimidations charting a fresh course? What if you looked at your life as if it were beginning anew? He says, is it an intolerable thought that you should put aside your well-groomed fears, wake up to a blank slate, and hold that position for just one day? And if we can't allow ourselves this one productive entertainment, then he asks, what has happened to us? Now, Now, this leads to a discussion of how you don't actually suck. He says, our opinions of ourselves are usually out of touch with reality. To prove that, you only need to slow down, clear your mind, and answer a few questions. For instance, can you remember a moment from your childhood when someone was notably kind or loving toward you? Do you have at least one? Yes. So in detail, what was it like? And how did you feel? Next, he asks, can you remember a time you stood up for someone who was being unfairly insulted or abused? What exactly did you do? And how did it make you feel? Next, he asks, can you remember a time when you did something because it was right, even though you knew you'd suffer for it? How did it feel to push through the fear and do it? And finally, he asks, have you ever done something out of nothing but simple, honest benevolence? How did that feel? Now, he says, did you answer these questions? Did you relive the experiences a little? He says, you see, you don't actually suck. You've merely been made to believe so by people and systems who profit from your addiction to all things dark. So what is life for? Well, Paul Rosenberg says you are alive and the life you possess doesn't have a preset direction. It's you who choose where to direct it. Our lives have the meaning we give them, and we give them meaning through exercises of will. You have immense capabilities, he says, but you can choose. Only you can choose to use them. If you spend your entire life reacting to darkness and threat, you never learn to be a potent being. Instead, you'll stay in a tight little shell talking about everything bad that happens in the world, seeking more and more bad news because it justifies your shell. Does that sound like a good way to spend a life? So he says, so when we do pull away from the carnival, when do we pull away from that carnival of bad news? When do we lift up our eyes and consider the radical possibility that we have good things in us too? When do we dare consider our virtues and abilities and start using them as a first choice? Now, Paul Rosenberg says for most people, the answer is never. 
Not once in a complete human lifetime. And that's tragic. In fact, it's premature death. People aren't specifically choosing this, of course. It's a choice thrust upon them by authority. But it ends with them never living by their own light. Instead, they find a doesn't-hurt-too-badly groove and plod along until they tip into a grave. But what if we picked a day and chose to live as if we were wonderful? If you're so deeply terrified that that will lead to doom, make it your day off or a vacation day. Get up and spend that day as if you were a luminous being. Flatly pretend if you must, but he says do it for a day. Is that really so evil a concept that you can't consider it? Even a five-point Calvinist committed to the depravity of man has to admit that Jesus defended David for saying, you are gods. So when is it that we choose to wake up and be wonderful for just one day? So he says, pick one. Every tomorrow is a new day and a new chance to be wonderful, so pick a day and wake up to a blank slate. Turn away from the knee-jerk reactions that ram their way into your mind. They can have the other 364 days. He says, try being wonderful. Pull out your calendar, pick a month and day, circle it, and then do it. You might like it. That's a great message. I know for some people it might seem, well, it's a little metaphysical, a little touchy-feely, but think about how much your attitude determines your outlook as you start the day. Especially that part about put aside your well-groomed fears. We all have them, and we hang on to them like they're our precious, right? We're, we're like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. I don't want to turn loose of my precious. It's what keeps me going. It's what keeps me oriented. That's powerful stuff, though. I think I'm going to put it to use. Not today, of course. I've got things to do. No, I, but I think it's, it's an exercise that's definitely worth trying. And there is something that happens when you start to approach each day with the understanding that, look, I got a fresh start, I got a fresh slate, and there is goodness that can be brought into the world today through me and my actions, my words, my thoughts. Something that I know that uh, a lot of us have to to learn to to push through, one of the fears we have is uh, whether or not we, we approach truth from the understanding of, I want to know what the truth is, right? We've got that little, that little uh, demon sitting on our shoulder. You can't handle the truth, right? Jack Nicholson himself is, is right there telling us you can't handle it. No truth handler, you. And here's the danger. And I've been guilty of this as much as anybody. We encounter a truth, and rather than asking ourselves, can this be true? We ask ourselves, what will people think of me if I believe this or if I espouse this belief? That's the kind of filter we run. It's the approval filter. It's the conformity filter. And I'm going to point this out since I mentioned uh, Javier Mille, the president of Argentina, in in uh, in the last segment. That's a guy who doesn't sit there and worry about what will people think of me if I espouse this belief. He just gets out there and says, this is what I believe. And lets the chips fall where they may. Now, do some people hate him for it? Oh, you better believe they do. And and the truth of the matter is, if you make truth your priority, if the question you ask is, is this true? 
And then you set about fact-checking it and weighing it and observing and basically proving whether or not that it's true. Can you corroborate what's, what's being said here? Some people are going to hate you, especially if you, if you live that truth or you speak that truth or you share it with other people. But that's exactly what the world needs more of. People who place a higher value on truth than on the need to be looked at as respectable and acceptable by the people around them. We all do it to some extent, but we don't realize how we are enslaving ourselves in the process. So the next time you encounter some truth that makes you stop and go, whoa, instead of asking yourself, what would people think if I were to uh, believe this? What would they think of me? You should be asking yourself, is this true? And if it's true, what do I intend to do about it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm on a little bit of a tear today, and I don't know exactly why. Maybe it's because we had a big snow day yesterday. Woke up to about half a foot of new snow with lots of blowing and drifting. Man, I'll tell you, the last five days has just been nothing but an adventure. (laughs) It's just been one big snowstorm after another and having to get cars dug out and unstuck from my driveway. And by the way, I'm going to throw some uh, some love out here. a neighbor of mine, and I say neighbor in the sense that uh, we we both live in a very rural setting, so he's he's probably a good mile and a half or so away. But uh, Tom Peters so kindly came by with a front end loader yesterday, and and moved the snow and plowed out my driveway. And I, it's a it's a big driveway. There's and and the snow was deep and the drifts were were considerable. And in about fifteen minutes, Tom had it knocked out. And when I offered to pay him. For, you know, the fuel and for his time and skill, the man definitely knows what he's doing sitting there behind the, the wheel of that front end loader. Tom wouldn't take it. And this, this was the excuse that he gave. He says, no, he goes, I need the blessings. You ever do something for people, not because you're expecting to get paid for it, but because it's a chance to serve them and you know that God honors that kind of service. He loves when people serve each other. And so I had to tell Tom, well, I'm, me and the Lord are going to have to work something out here. And so we are. But that was uh, greatly appreciated and uh, a powerful example to me of, of you know what, what good neighbors are. My mom has some wonderful neighbors. Now, she lives in the city. She lives in a cul-de-sac and I don't know who does it, but when a big snowstorm comes, without fail, I will go over to visit her, and someone will have come by and cleared her, her walk. Now, she doesn't get around so well. She's, she's coming up on her uh, 89th birthday next week. And it's, it's a big deal. So whoever does that, thank you. For, for your kindness and, and for your willingness to serve. Now, this kind of leads into the topic that, that I want to touch on here, and that is the loss of the sacred in American culture. This is an article from Walker Larson, found this on intellectualtakeout.org. 
Walker says there's a grim scene near the end of the Iliad in which the Greek hero Achilles, because of his rage and grief over the death of his comrade Patroclus at the hands of the Trojan prince Hector, slays Hector in battle and drags his corpse behind his chariot day after day, desecrating the body in a manner unthinkable to the ancient Greeks. In fact, the affront to the dignity of this hero and prince as well as the violation of the sacred customs of Greek society, eventually compels the gods to intervene. They tell Priam, the elderly king of Troy, to go to Achilles and plead for the body of Hector so that it may be properly honored and buried. The gods will not allow such a desecration to continue. In the final lines of this epic poem, which along with the Odyssey forms the bedrock of Western literature and arguably Western civilization as a whole, Homer reaffirms a notion that all Greeks would have agreed with. There are certain lines that must not be crossed, certain sacred realities that cannot be defied, even by the semi-divine hero Achilles. Now, Walker Larson says, I offer this example to illustrate the point that certain concepts and customs, even those that were not, strictly speaking, religious, were more or less universally respected in the ancient Greek world. Another instance would be the Greek notion of xenia, which was the sacred obligation of hospitality to strangers and the important customs that bound guests and hosts together. In Homeric poetry, those who violated these laws of hospitality, such as did the Cyclops, Polyphemus, or the brash young suitors of Odysseus's wife, Penelope, on Ithaca, suffered brutal punishments as a consequence. Homer constantly insists on the importance of certain traditions that humanity must respect, including honoring the dead and welcoming guests into one's home. Now, what the Greeks and most civilizations throughout history possessed was a sense of of the sacred, even if it was sometimes ill-defined or even erroneous. The word sacred derives from the Latin sacrare, which means to set apart. Something sacred is set apart from common or profane use, from the Latin profanum, or outside the temple. It rises above the everyday and ordinary, forming a bridge between common human existence and the transcendent. Walker Larson says such a sense of the sacred is predicated on the recognition of realities higher than the individual self and to which the self must submit, at least from time to time. Whether that be ideals of justice, the nobility of virtue, the importance of human dignity, the respect owed the state, or the reverence due the gods. Different cultures, of course, have prized different ideals and held as sacred various customs. Now, Walker Larson says what's unusual or even pathological, I would suggest, is for a culture to have no sacred customs at all. And yet more and more, he says, I see this is happening in America. For what do all Americans hold as sacred? What do we consider untouchable, inviolable? We might once have said things like our flag or our anthem, but that's no longer universally respected, as evidenced by the take-a-knee phenomenon. Our national heroes and their legacy, maybe? No more. The memory of our forefathers has been intentionally tainted by educational programs like critical race theory and their monuments defaced and even pulled down. What about our famous American individualism and respect for the rights of the individual? Only if you are part of a designated victim group. A Christian heritage and Christian morals then? Christian morals, rather? Please, he says, the fastest-growing religious affiliation in the United States as of 2021 is none, N-O-N-E. But perhaps worse than the outright rage-filled attacks on the sacred, like the tearing down of monuments, 
is the banality and crassness that characterizes so much of pop culture. Walker Larson says there's a madness of mundanity about us. Nothing, in, nothing is all that serious to us, it seems. Nothing is above being joked about. Crudeness and foul language, profanities, characterize much of our speech. He says, I think for many Americans, it's not a case of willfully and giddily dereverencing sacred realities. More often, the possibility of the sacred has never really occurred to them, steeped as they are in scientific secularism. Many of us are simply adrift in a sea of materialistic consumerism and instant gratification with the glare of electronic devices reflected in our empty eyes. And he says, all of this is the fruit of a predominating postmodern philosophy, insidiously infused with skepticism, nihilism, and materialism. So to take the case of materialism, for example, if that philosophy is true, then nothing is to be reverenced, for nothing is actually any different from anything else. Nothing is set apart. Everything is composed of the same atoms. So why, why honor the body of a fallen warrior? Chemically speaking, it's the same as anybody. It decomposes the same way as roadkill does. Moreover, from a materialistic standpoint, all of our concepts of high ideals, love, justice, sacrifice, and courage, for example, are merely the accidental consequences of blind chemical reactions in our brains. They have no intrinsic or transcendent meaning, so what is there to reverence, them, reverence about them? He says, in addition to being born of a recognition of realities beyond mere matter, a sense of the sacred is born ultimately of a sense of humility. For all their pagan ignorance, the Greeks recognized the existence of realities above the whim of an individual human being, forces more powerful than the will of man. For Homer, man was not the ultimate lord of the universe. Homer knew through his poetic intuition that there were higher powers and higher realities than the everyday life of the herdsman, the sailor, or even the king. To have a sense of the sacred, one must be prepared to accept the existence of something beyond and greater than the self. Boy, does that line ring true. Walker Larson says, I think it is precisely this sense of humility that we're losing through the arrogance of our scientific and materialistic ruling paradigm. The attitude of humility and wonder is not fostered by the narcissism, hedonism, and consumerism that characterizes our culture more and more. The Greeks had a word for that as well, hubris. The pride that goeth before destruction is the biblical writer, destruction rather, is the biblical writer phrased it, phrased it rather. So all of this demands that we ask, if a culture is defined by those values and customs it considers untouchable and non-negotiable, sacred, then who are we as Americans in the 21st century? And can a society that's lost its sense of the sacred endure? Now, I know that's making at least a couple people kind of uncomfortable. I don't know, this is kind of getting into, you know, some pretty spiritual sort of stuff here, and maybe maybe it's just a little too religious, but... Can I give you at least one example of, of where we are seeing this play out regularly? It used to be that the innocence of the young was something that was considered sacred, meaning that a person who preyed upon children, particularly sexually preyed upon children, was considered the lowest of the low. I mean, for crying out loud, even in prison, even among the worst people in society, right? The murderers. <clears throat> the rapists, the abusers of mankind. No one is lower than those who would sexually prey upon children. See, even among thieves, there's a sense of honor. 
So when you see people trying to sexualize children and train them into perversions, you can get a sense that uh, we have no sense of sacredness anymore. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today. I know I've kind of been all over the place, but, you know, I go where the material takes me. And this is this is what I was able to find uh, since the last show. And I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I've got some, some more fun stuff to share with you. I want to jump to the article of the day because this... This ties into a couple of conversations that I've had within the last 24 hours. Since it was a snow day, uh, my wife was at home and um, we had some time to talk. We don't often get time. She's she's a school teacher and so she's very, very busy. And, you know, I rarely get to see her or the kids until much later in the day. I start my workday about 4 o'clock in the morning. They aren't home until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But uh, Becky asked me at one point, she says, so what do you think? What do you think is going to happen in this coming year? And I get that question a lot, and it's not because people think I'm clairvoyant, but they know that I'm, you know, I'm doing my best to pay attention to what's going on, and I, I want to figure out, you know, what the likelihood is of, uh, you know, things coming coming about. And I don't really have a good answer other than I, I can see there are a lot of things that are in motion. There's a great deal of instability right now, and in keeping with fourth-turning methodology, I think we're probably approaching a climax to the crises that have been building for the last, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so. It's a pretty big deal. But then I had a conversation with a, uh, with a member of the Bundy family, and I'm just going to keep it kind of vague, but it was the same kind of thing talking about what do you see happening this come year? What do you think about, uh, about what's going on? And it was, uh, I, I love this because uh, the, the members of the Bundy family, first of all, have not only impressed me, but they've actually very deeply impacted me with their unwavering faith in God. I know the media likes to put, oh, they're just troublemakers and they're welfare ranchers and you're out there thinking the laws don't apply to them. But I'm here to tell you that uh, from firsthand experience and from the luxury of being able to go to the source, these are people of very, very deep faith as well as understanding and appreciation of that freedom, which I think I mentioned earlier, is the greatest gift that God gives his children. They don't take that freedom and run with it. We, you know, let's, let's practice hedonism. You know, life is only about pleasure and nothing but pleasure. No, life is about finding God and allowing God to, to guide you. That is, if, you, if you're serious about being happy. I can't remember, was it Neil A. Maxwell? Who, who had said this at one time about how really, you know, considering God created everything, there's nothing we can give God that's truly ours except to submit our will to his. That's the ultimate act of, uh, of choice is to say, you know what, thy will be done and mean it. Basically, there's nothing we can put on the altar more so than saying, you know, let your will prevail and I, and I will honor that. And and this is how what I love about how he phrased that. He said it's it's the only instance in which unconditional surrender is also total victory. That's pretty deep. But we should we should probably ponder on that more. 
So anyway, back to what's going to happen in 2024. None of us knows for sure. But uh, one thing that we did talk about uh, was, you know, well, so what about uh, the election? And I try not to get caught up in this because, frankly, I'm not looking for a political savior. I don't think we can vote our way out of the situation that we're in. At the same time, I'm looking at uh, how Trump performed in the Iowa caucuses, and it's like, holy cow. If, if the media and the political class who've been working so hard ever since Trump was elected back in 2016, if they think that uh, they have slowed this guy down or they've hamstrung him, it sure doesn't appear so. In fact, it was so blatant, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow actually had to make the, the decision, well, we're going to cut off this uh, Trump victory speech. We don't even want you to hear what he's saying. CNN did the same thing. They cut away after just a few minutes. They can't handle the truth or they can't handle the reality of of anything that that he says and that's not because trump is right about everything it's just the harder they try to knock him down the more he pops back up and i want to i want to point you to the article of the day that i share in my show notes at the brianhydeshow.com these are the show notes for january 18th 2024 and it's from sasha stone who was a former left-winger, she, and she talks about this in her article, about uh, how she once was the true believer who, you know, coming into 2020, she was absolutely against Trump. She wanted to make sure that uh, Biden was going to be, uh, you know, elected. She says, in, 20, in the run-up to 2020, I was in a panic that we were about to live through another 1972 landslide. Remember when Nixon was re-elected? And she says, I did everything possible to ensure Biden was the nominee because I knew he could beat Trump. But then she saw what was going on. She recognized what was happening. Now she says, bring it on. As far as, as, far as Trump, you know, yes, the media would like to see him dragged through the village and hanged. They would cheer. His supporters could be put in detainment camps. They would all go along with it. But she says, the big landslide victory the total beatdown, she wants to see it. And after, after seeing how Trump performed in, in the Iowa caucuses, she says the, the Democrats deserve it. They deserve to lose and lose so big that it sends an unequivocal message that resonates through the ages never again. And she goes into some detail here. Can it happen in this country that the sitting president investigates a duly elected president before he takes office? It can never happen again when one regime declares itself the supreme leader and decides to systematically undo the election results by sabotaging the campaign and the presidency of their chief rival. That choice is not up to them. It's up to us. And so she says it can never happen again. That the regime drives an impeachment aided by the security state and sends out operatives within the administration to find something to use against Trump and openly sabotage him when his job is to serve us, the American people. And that the regime, out of bitterness, narcissism, and totalitarian impulses, demands all of American society form a phony resistance and use that to justify the dehumanization, marginalization, surveillance, and disenfranchisement of the American citizens. By the way, she shares the, uh, I believe it was the Newsweek uh, article, The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign that saved the 2020 election. They came right out and told us what they did. And she goes through a lot of the stuff here that, that opened her eyes to where she realized, you know what? I have aligned myself 
with people who are absolutely willing to, to go as, as wicked as they have to to get their way. So she says, come November, the silent majority must find their way back to 1972. If the leaders can't bring this country together, then we, the people, must. The regime doesn't get to tell the American people what they should care about. They don't get to decide what kind of country this should be for us. And they certainly don't have the right nor the invitation to go to war on our elected leaders just because they don't like them. It's a great article. It's pretty lengthy. But uh, Sasha has, has really got some great insights. And this is, this is where the conversation I had with, with a member of the Bundy family was, was interesting. Because neither one of us are necessarily big fans of Trump. But I find myself more and more persuaded that uh, that's probably how I would vote. If you were to push me today and say, well, who would you vote for? If the, if the election was today, that's probably who I would vote for. And here's why. It's not because I believe that Donald Trump is is, uh, the guy who's going to ride in on horseback and save us. Frankly, I see some very real danger that the pendulum is going to swing too far back to the right, and we may end up with a right-wing dictatorship of some sort. However, I see the threat that Trump represents to the establishment. I see the lengths to which the establishment is willing to go to try to stop him. And my vote would be less of a uh, supportive, you know, full-throated, you know, obeisance to, to Donald Trump and more of, sorry for the image here, two raised middle fingers to the establishment. Because the establishment has made it very clear by the language that they use, and I'm talking from January 6th on, that uh, they see anyone who is not in lockstep with them as the enemy. So this may be the final chance to to really re- repudiate them and and tell them that uh, it's not going to fly. Now, I understand there's a lot that can happen. We've got uh, you know the better part of ten months or so, or eleven months between now and and the election. And I still don't uh, I still don't have the faith that this election is going to really change the course of things. But if enough people recognize that the real enemy is uh, the the forces that are trying to hogtie them and, and hobble them physically, financially, economically, mentally, intellectually, politically. I'm all for, you know, giving them what for. Again, a couple of raised middle fingers is, is pretty much what they need to see. This is The Brian Hyde Show.